Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, we're a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us, you heard Sally with Out of the Pan, which you can catch every Sunday from 12 till 1, and also check it out via 3cr.org.au. I'm Nick Pendergrass hosting today, and on the show, I'm going to bring you some of the uh, yeah, 3CR friends over at 3CR Tuesday Breakfast did a show, their annual anti-Melbourne Cup special on Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday that just passed. And yeah, really great show. And I wanted to bring you some of that show. They had um, some some things on the Melbourne Cup specifically, but also generally on yeah animal liberation issues and also connections with other social justice social justice issues, other forms of oppression, etc. Uh, so really great show. I encourage you to check that out and I'm actually going to replay an interview that they replayed from another show as part of this show which covered a bunch of other things as well um, and so yeah this the interview I'm going to bring you is by um, by someone called Afco who does a lot of write, writing about uh, yeah, the sort of interconnections of animals and racism and how uh, speciesism, discrimination against species is so closely tied to racism uh, with, for example, uh, people of colour when they receive racism, often that being very much tied to devaluing animals as well or using analogies to animals, etc. Um, so, yeah, re- really interesting um interview and yeah really argues that we can't challenge speciesism without uh challenging racism and and vice versa as well because they're so closely tied together so really interesting interview um i'm going to leave in all the intros from 3cr tuesday breakfast who again replayed this and they replayed it from the animal voices podcast i'll give some more plugs for that at the end of the discussion um but yeah thanks to 3cr tuesday breakfast for that show and for sharing this interview specifically Um, being Tuesday breakfast obviously you can check that out every Thursday or or perhaps Tuesday so yeah every every Tuesday 3CR Tuesday breakfast airs from 7 till 8 30 you can also check out all the episodes at 3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday hyphen breakfast My guest today is author and decolonial theorist Af Ko. Af is the co-author of the book Afroism, Essays on Pop Culture, Feminism, and Black Veganism from Two Sisters. She is also the founder of Black Vegans Rock. In 2019, PETA stated that Af has arguably done more to give black vegans a voice than any other media outlet today. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Black Youth Project, Huffington Post, and Veg News Magazine, to name a few. In 2017, AF was nominated for the People Environment Achievement Award. Her second book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, was just published this month. Hello, AF, and welcome to Animal Voices. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So oh, thank you. Cool. cool. Yeah, thank you for being here. So first of all, tell us about Black Vegans Rock. What is it and what was your aim with this project? Sure. So I launched Black Vegans Rock, which is a website back in 2016. Um, and I decided to make it because I was seeing these conversations pop up um, that were stating that veganism was this white thing. That only white people who were, you know, elitist and bougie and wealthy were engaging in this lifestyle. And I saw this conversation in multiple spaces, particularly like anti-racist spaces. 
And I also saw in the vegan movement that they're like, oh, this is a white thing. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to um, kind of curate different stories from black people who were vegan, who wanted to share why they went vegan. And I populated it on a website. And um, it really just changed me as a vegan because I read a ton of different perspectives and it really challenged some of my own. And um, yeah, so uh, it's, for me, it's like a representation project. It's a project that offers visibility to black vegans to kind of silence the critics who say veganism is white. Amazing. So you stayed in your new book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, that you yourself proudly identify as vegan, but you also express that veganism and the animal rights movement as they exist today may not be enough to bring about animal liberation. Can you elaborate on this? Absolutely. And that's a really deep question. <laughs> so I'll try my best. Um, but so for me, yeah, I identify as vegan. I am plant based, but I have always wrestled with the term vegan because it has a particular historical legacy and a, a, a pop, in popular culture, people have a particular idea of what a vegan does and what a vegan looks like. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really confusing term because I actually think a lot of people have different definitions for veganism and even on Black Vegans Rock, just within the black community. Veganism has a different connotation depending upon your life experience. Um, so for me, while I am plant-based, I don't really at times relate to the vegan movement. And as I'm getting older and as I'm reading more outside of the movement, I'm finding that this might not be the best space even just for me and the work that I do. And so I wouldn't have even written this book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, if I only looked at literature in the animal rights movement. Because I think that um, in order to see the full scope and size of the problem of animal oppression, we can't just assume that the animal rights movement is the only movement tackling this problem. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I did for my book was I actually purposely looked outside of the animal rights movement um, to see how other people were talking about this problem. And um, I, I was really inspired by conversations in a lot of anti-racist spaces that were talking about this term like zoological racism. They were talking about um, anti-racism and animals at the same time. And so for me, I would really encourage people to first of all, stop thinking through movements when we're trying to think about a problem because we get really limited um, in doing that. We get stuck in these bubbles. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I would have never even written this book because if I only looked at animal rights stuff because a lot of the literature that I draw upon in this book um, come from people who aren't even animal rights activists or who don't even openly write about animals. Mm -hmm. Yet when I was reading what they were writing, um, it blew my mind and I saw the links to animals and that's why I had to write this book because I'm like, I have to bring these conversations into the same space. And on top of it, um, I think it's important to note that I don't think one movement alone is going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, when I was reading some stuff like, there's, I'll get to that later in the interview, like this one guy, James Perkinson, who does nothing with animals. He specifically writes about white supremacy and consumption. When I was reading that, I was like, wow, like I, I would bet that most animal rights activists have never even heard of this guy simply because he doesn't call himself a vegan or animal rights activist. And I, I think that's a huge problem. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely think we need more than one movement to do the issue. I, I mean, I'm sorry, to solve the issue. Um, and lastly, I feel like, and this is something I think maybe a lot of people are noticing, I think the animal rights movement or vegan movement or whatever we want to call it, I think that it's becoming increasingly corporatized mm -hmm. and it's becoming, and I'm not talking about like individual activists on the ground who are doing the work, who are doing like sanctuary work and rescuing animals. Those, uh, those people are some of the most compassionate people I've ever met in my existence. I'm talking about like how we understand what a movement is composed of these like, you know, nonprofits and organizations. I'm seeing a huge issue that it's becoming less and less about animals and getting people to understand animal oppression and more and more about pe getting people to just identify as vegan and eat a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming divorced from the issue. And I see that as being really concerning. Um, so that's why I was saying in my book, I, I, I think we have to go a little bit outside of the animal rights movement to um, help animals. And in my last chapter in the book, I purposely say like, why the animal rights movement needs to release its grasp over the animal because they oftentimes act like they're the only ones who care about this issue and they, they aren't. Right, right, absolutely. Um, the book, I noticed, is pretty heavily critical of the concept of intersectionality as a framework for dismantling systems of oppression, which I found both surprising and thought-provoking. Uh, can you give our listeners an overview of what intersectionality is and why you feel it's not the most effective approach? 
Absolutely. So it's worth noting that, you know, intersectionality is literally just one theoretical framework of many. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay if people don't vibe with it. And so initially I did. I learned about intersectionality when I was an undergrad, maybe about 21 years old. And it was, uh, it's a legal framework um, developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it was designed to make black women visible in this legal structure. Because black women, for example, let's say in an employment situation, um, let's say they were experiencing both racism and sexism uniquely as a black woman. An employer could easily dismiss a black woman's claims by being like, well, how can we be sexist? We have women at our company, and let's say it's all white women. Mm -hmm. Or they're like, well, how can we be racist? We have black people here, and let's say it's all black men. In doing that, we kind of erase the unique situation that black women are in. And so that's why she made this to kind of make black women visible in a legal structure. Mm -hmm. Now, that term was really, really attractive to social justice movements because it provided language for this feeling we had that, like, we knew a lot of things were happening at one time in terms of oppression, but we didn't know how to articulate it. And so a lot of activists kind of borrowed that term, took it out of its legal context that was supposed to be about black women, and started using intersectional as a synonym for any connection for any oppression. And to a certain extent, I think that's okay. I think it's an attractive, seductive term. I think it makes sense. Except that it has a lot of gaps, (laughs) Um, even in terms of how it's applied towards black women. And the problem is now animal rights activists are taking this framework that was supposed to be about black women that already had a, a ton of gaps, and now they're just throwing animals into the mix. And not only does that just muddy all the conversations, it dilutes each of these issues as well. And so now today in social justice movements, everyone is talking about like 100 oppressions at one time, and it's confusing. And sometimes it's, it's not um, accurate. And so in my book, I, I, I can't go into all of it right now because it would take like seven hours. But like, <laughs> I go into talking about how you know, intersectionality specifically ignores black men's situations. And I just really don't think it's uh, an appropriate framework to talk about animals. Um, and I offer something different, which is multidimensional theory. So that's basically in a, in a gist what intersectionality is and what my problems are with it. Mm-hmm. So you talk quite a bit in the book about animality and how white supremacy operates by animalizing people of color. Uh, what does this mean exactly, and what are some examples of how it manifests? Right. So um, I think anti-racist movements are quite fluent in talking about this, that we know that um, throughout the history of white supremacy, people of color have been considered to be non-human or animal, right? And so um, that's essentially what we talk about and we fight about. Now, the problem is in anti-racist movements, we oftentimes talk about animals as a metaphor to talk about our experiences, right? So I've seen anti-racist protests where people are like, you know, white people need to stop treating us like animals or they treat us like we're dogs. However, what I do in my theory is I say, well, what does it look like to now actually talk about non-human animals? You know, (laughs) what does it look like when you are animalized, let's say yourself? And now you're going to also talk about animal bodies. So that's what I do in my work. Um, I, 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 can you repeat your question? Because I'm losing. Oh, no. So, yeah, I was just asking you about um, the concept of animality that you talk about in your book and how uh, white supremacy animalizes people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you kind of defined what this means. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I was just wondering, what are some examples of how it manifests? Oh, sure. So <laughs> there are almost too many. Yeah. Um, you can think about like police, for example, in the United States is a huge problem with police violence. Um, there have been a lot of texts recovered and investigations where, you know, white police officers are referring to black people as monkeys or apes or even how in U.S. history, black people were put in zoos. Um, to, you can think about Donald Trump like every week, our president, you know, calling people of color animals, immigrants are animals that are dangerous. He called Omarosa, a former black staff member, a dog. So you see this language of animals being used to weaponize, um, being, being weaponized to hurt people of color. And I also think that, you know, in the theory Syl and I talk about, we not only look at the ways in which people of color are animalized, we also look at how animals are racialized. So, yeah, that's what this book touches on as well. Right, absolutely. Uh, one thing that kind of jumped out at me in the book was you um, talk a fair amount about taxidermy as a symbol of white supremacy. Can you tell us a little more about that? Totally, yeah. So, um, in the U.S., I'm going to be careful with how I say this because I don't want to, like, stereotype here. 
But in the U.S., <laughs> there are particular, like, white subcultures that kind of form their identity or express their white pride through um, displaying animal corpses. So they'll wear camo, um, be really into hunting, and you'll see taxidermy or, like, basically, like, petrified animal corpses on walls. Mm -hmm. um, so for me... I started seeing how taxidermy and animal corpses kind of became this symbol of white supremacy. The taxidermy, in my own personal experience, as well as then reading, you know, scholarship from other people who've been saying this, that taxidermy almost serves as a racialized signpost for white supremacy. And in the U.S., I, I saw this connection that for certain whites who rely upon animal corpses for their identity, I saw one's desire to dominate nature was coupled with one's desire to denigrate minorities. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so in the book I do, you know, like an extensive media analysis, just examining some of my favorite shows and movies, um, looking at the ways in which even in our popular culture, we kind of draw upon that connection between white supremacy and animal oppression, almost accidentally. I, I think, so I, I look at the show Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix, and they were teasing the neo-Nazi. It's a comedy show. And... They purposely make him a hunter, and his house is, like, completely decked out in a ton of animal corpses on the wall and taxidermy. And then um, they also include a cherrywood cabinet where he has Nazi memorabilia. And so that's kind of like the theme of the episode, that they're kind of poking fun, but also creating this connection between white supremacy and animals. And so in my book, I say that, you know, we recognize, let's say, a swastika as an immediate um, emotional, like, we have an emotional reaction to a swastika to highlight this white supremacist like you know sign whereas i argue that what taxidermy kind of similarly has a connection to white supremacy and similarly for me at least has a connotation that there's a white supremacist kind of environment around um so again i'm saying that lightly because i don't want to offend people but like it's something that we kind of like subconsciously know. Right. And so that's where I couple or I, or I argue that, you know, animal bodies are racialized in this particular cultural like, order because um, they're purposely denigrated and purposely included in this hierarchy where white men are at the top, people of color are seen as being in the middle, kind of subhuman, non-human, and animals are at the bottom. And so it's like not only are people of color animalized, but animals are also being racialized and are also what Syl and I argue experiencing racial violence, which is a really controversial thing to say taken out of context, but with context, it, it makes sense. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an interview with AFCO, a black American decolonial theorist and writer about speciesism as an extension of white supremacy. Part two of the interview will be right after this. 24 hours in the same place, told them I need me a vacay. I never get round to the vacay Bank statements making me lazy Everyday payday I stopped eating meat in 18 Still I got a full plate You never know when a beef can go off I didn't want to show off But when you're the first in I need their hearts to beat When they see me in person How is it a 50-50 if I need reimbursing? They can't drink from my table If they're not putting the work in She was at home in bed I'm busy flirting Weekends I've got the weekdays merging I swear I'm just trying to keep waves in my hair I Wanna make them record or hold their torch in the airway Cause I feel alive when it all lights up Let my enemies know that I don't give a fuck And I swore to myself that I'd never look down when I first climbed I've done well for an ex-gang member And I've done bits and bobs just like what Montana done to Rebenga I'm one of the last ones standing Everyone's dead or in jail now And I've got trauma that creeps up on me that I try not to remember I was born in December, five days before Christmas day Haunted by the ghost of the Christmas past Didn't wanna blind them, so I kept my wrist tilted this way I'm not afraid to drop to my knees and pray Cause I never thought that I'd overcome this pain I was born in December, five days before Christmas day Haunted by the ghost of the Christmas past Didn't wanna blind them, so I kept my wrist tilted this way I'm not afraid to drop to my knees and pray I've been studying psychology Started when I go see a psychiatrist Thank God she accepted my apology Cause I don't even think I could do none of this From day one, she proven herself Back when I couldn't get shoes off the shelf Back when I couldn't even get into the club Didn't pop bottles, never had Louis on my belt I'm ready to make a commitment I've got trainers coming on a shipment I've got an M in one account and an M That I put into the crib, are you listening? Me and these rappers are different Cause most of these rappers chat fiction Me, I'm just telling a story The type that will go down in history This is December, I told them I needed a choir Plus I'm thinking out loud so I'm gonna need quiet 
I hope I made him proud, but I bet they didn't. I've been practicing patience, let me apply. I haven't been posting, I've not been replying. There's a lot of moving parts, so I needed some time. I already believe I don't need a sign. I already know the reason I shine. I was looking for symptoms online. Emotional instability, impulsive behavior, rage, sorrow, borderline personality. It's a disorder, but it's important, cause without that I just blend in. I'm just brave enough to say it out loud, I'm not unpretending. When I was on road, they say I was mad, and that was cool, cause we had to be bad. Now that I'm famous, I've had to change the way that I think and the way that I act. Emotionally switched off, I'm only just fixing it now. Gotta thank my girl for sticking around and holding me up Cause I could've drowned and never again will I let her down Responsibility comes with a crown And that's why I always frown It was my job to build a bridge all the way from the north over to the south And when they take shots, I watch it bounce off my body armor I'm Marcus Aridius, Julius Caesar I Used to suffer with sieges I guess everyone's vulnerable It's what you do with the struggle though Can't believe I got trainers in JD But I used to be criminal 29 years of December But this one is a miracle I've done well for an ex-gang member And I've done bits and bobs just like what Montana done to Rebenga I'm one of the last ones standing Everyone's dead or in jail now And I've got trauma that creeps up on me that I try not to remember I was born in December Five days before Christmas day haunted by the ghost of the Christmas past Didn't wanna blind them so I kept my wrist to it this way I'm not afraid to drop to my knees and pray Cause I never thought that I'd overcome this pain in December, five days before Christmas day haunted by the ghost of the Christmas past Didn't wanna blind them so I kept my wrist to it this way I'm not afraid to drop to my knees and pray Cause I never thought that I'd overcome this pain The Jabberung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabberung women's country Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. You're about to hear part two of an interview from Vancouver Co-op Radio with AFCO, founder of the website Black Vegans Rock and author of Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, published earlier this month. In this section of the interview, Af talks about the link she makes in her book between white supremacy, witchcraft and the consumption of meat. A warning, the beginning of this section references some rather heavy topics such as cannibalism. This book, by the way, was a lot of fun for me to write because... (laughs) I was just uh, looking through a ton of scholarship, and I had a blast. But it all started um, when after I saw Jordan Peele's popular film uh, Get Out in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that movie, I mean, I, I'm still, like, shook by that film, and I still watch it. I saw it a million times. Um, and basically, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, there's no way I could possibly summarize it for you because it's that weird. But essentially, white people are harvesting... Um, black bodies and black souls and essences. It's a really disturbing film, but it's, it's really good. And after I watched that film, I ran into the scholarship of um, a scholar named Dr. James Perkinson. And I found an article where he said that European racism is like a form of, of witchcraft. And he was kind of arguing that historically, um, think about it, like white societies or white colonizers who would go to black and brown lands, they would go there and completely take over and redefine the practices of what they perceived to be the other. And so it was really common for white people to look at the practices of black and brown people and call it primitive and oftentimes to call it witchcraft because they didn't understand it. And so Dr. Perkinson is arguing the very act 
of going to another nation and calling their practices witchcraft is a witchcraft practice in and of itself. Hmm. And so he argues that, um, you know, white supremacy kind of got its power through Christianity and, and colonial consumption. And so one of the things that's really disturbing in a lot of the research I did, and I would urge everyone to get the book by Vincent Woodard titled The Delectable Negro. It's a really disturbing book, but it's a history I think animal rights activists should know. Um, it was actually really common for white colonizers to actually literally eat black and brown people. Wow. And there is, yeah, disturbing, and I didn't know this. And so, you, you know, when you think about it, um, a lot of white people are always looking at black and brown nations and, again, calling their practices primitive or showing how they engage in acts of cannibalism. But it was actually a, a common practice of colonizers to do that. And I actually argue that in my book that, like, in the same way, like, as we know, rape today is like a tool of war, a horrible, disgusting, sordid tool of war. Consumption was actually a tool of colonization. And um, in terms of metaphorical consumption, in terms of appropriating and stealing someone's land, their culture, their language, their names, who they are, but also literal consumption, like literally eating people. And so Vincent Woodard has um, a book where he uses former slave narratives who talked about actually witnessing, you know, white people eating blacks. And so it's a really uncomfortable history. But you, when you think about it um, and you, you look at that practice it almost is a white supremacy and racism is almost its own form of witchcraft in that sense. And so he actually also, um, Dr. Perkinson, draws upon Christianity. Um, so I'm going to give a quick story here that he says Christianity, if we were, it's so normalized in the West, right? Seen as this like just regular religion. But he says it's actually, if you read the text, it's like it's, it feels like witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, I was raised Catholic in a church like my whole life. My father was a music director. He's an organist. I was in a choir my whole life. And um, one song that we always sang was called Taste and See. And if you're Catholic, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I was raised Catholic. If, you, if anyone who's listening is Catholic, um, they might know that song. And it's played during Mass when it's communion time. And communion is the time when everyone gets and they eat the bread, which is like a wafer. And if you think about it, the bread actually represents Jesus's body. Mm -hmm. And then you drink w wine, which is supposed to represent Jesus's blood. Mm -hmm. Now, we're just used to saying this like it's a normal day, right? right? You just go to church on Sunday and like, oh, I'm going to eat the body and blood of Christ. But when you really step back, you're looking at this from a different context. It's like, what the hell is going on? Like, that sounds... It sounds like sh like some type of shamanistic practice, right. but because white people are doing it, because it's a Western thing, it's seen as like this noble, you know, thing. I'm like, it's weird, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it kind of turns the sorcery of James Perkinson back on white supremacy and Christianity. And so what I do is I take Perkinson and Woodard's work on consumption, colonial consumption, and I bring animals into that conversation by showing how eating animals today is a part of that conversation, is a part of that colonial consumption. Yes. So, I know that might sound super weird, but I, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, I, I actually wanted to quickly read one quote from the book that really jumped out at me. Um, this is something that to me seems to encapsulate much of your central thesis. Uh, it goes, veganism isn't just about kicking a meat-eating habit and getting some veggies into your diet. It's a powerful rejection of a racist food system and a racist cannibalistic politics that characterizes animals and non-white people as disposable and consumable. This is why anti-racist theory matters in our efforts to free animals. The goal isn't just to get people to replace chicken with tofu, although that's a great start. The goal is to get the public to understand why animals matter on a political and ethical level. The goal is to reveal how the current power structure relies upon anti-black and anti-animal ideologies to strengthen itself, end quote. So I'm wondering, um, just going back to this statement of... Um, veganism being a powerful rejection of a racist food system and racist cannibalistic politics. Can you explain what you mean by cannibalistic in this context? Yeah, sure. So uh, cannibalism in this context is a quite is kind of like a paradox because on the one hand, people of color um, aren't fully seen as human. So it's like, well, is it cannibalism, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're homo sapien. So it is cannibalism. And so in, in, in talking about anti-racism and veganism, and this is, again, why veganism is oftentimes a really confusing vehicle to talk about um, these politics. It's, it's really confusing. And that's why I hate using the term vegan sometimes because it's so reductionist. But if we understand that white supremacy 
you know, mark certain bodies as non-human or subhuman or animal, not only bolster their own superiority, but to have an excuse to consume them. <laughs> the we can see how veganism can offer us more than just being anti-speciesist or just fighting factory farming. Like we're all, we're underestimating the power of veganism here. Like veganism, if we link all these histories together of colonial consumption, um, the ways in which certain bodies, not only just animal but people of color, were consumed, veganism with that history offers us so much more. Mm -hmm. And so again, it goes back to that history of consumption and taking and metaphorical consumption that veganism, if we take all that into account, is a rejection of colonial consumption in its totality and essentially eating others that are deemed racially inferior. So Syl and I make this point again that animals are racial subjects in this particular white supremacist order. And so we reject eating their bodies. We reject colonial consumption. Again, like I said, just as rape is a tool of war, eating others is a tool of colonialism. It has always been. And that's why I think veganism has the power to do more than what it's doing right now. And I don't think we'll ever reach that potential until we knock down the borders placed around our movements. Because it's, it's frightening to me that um, animal rights activists are so invested in people, you know, ending meat consumption, but they don't know about this history of other types of consumptions. And if we knock the borders down and put all this literature together, we have a really, really powerful um, tool. And so this is why, um, you know, for a lot of people who might be listening, they might be like, wait a minute, Af, are you like comparing oppressions? Are you comparing what black people are going through to what animals are going through? And I always say, um, no. And first of all, I'll be one of those people to say, I, I don't think, I'm not offended by comparisons. Um, I don't think a lot of people have a good justification for being offended by comparisons. I think it's just this thing that we've just accepted that it's insensitive and we shouldn't probe any further. And I always say when someone has, uh, just because something is sensitive doesn't mean we shouldn't probe it further or talk about it. In fact, we should. However, comparisons... Um, that's the that's not the relationship between what black people are going through and animals. It's not like a comparison. And so in my book, I call it um, a grammar system. So let me explain this so that people aren't being like, oh, my gosh, AF is comparing black people to animals. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. So I'm going to ask listeners to, like, think about this for a second. So imagine that white supremacy and this is going to be hard to do, but imagine white supremacy is a sentence, right? So you pull out a piece of paper and you write a sentence down with a period point. And that is supposed to represent white supremacy, the sentence itself. I'm arguing in my theory that racial violence is represented by one word in that sentence, and animal violence is represented by another word in that sentence. They make up the building blocks of that entire sentence. You need them both to read the sentence to make sense, right? So racial violence and animal violence are two different words in that white supremacist sentence, and they need to be read together. So it's not about comparing the two words. That doesn't even make sense. It's like comparing the word and and the. They're two different words, but they are a part of a grammar system of white supremacy. And so that's why it's difficult to talk about this stuff because everyone thinks through an intersectional lens where racism is one thing, sexism is one thing, speciesism is one thing. And I don't think like that. I don't think everything is its own individual system that can be compared or intersect. I see everything as being composed of one another. Almost like um, in my book, I say instead of two dimensions, like a, you know, a piece of paper, a flat piece of paper, I see a cube. I, don't, I see this as being multidimensional. So it's not about comparing animal violence and racial violence. It's understanding they're composed of one another. Uh -huh. So I just want to put that out there. And if that's confusing, I promise that in the book it will make complete sense because it's illustrated. And I purposely illustrated it because there's no way for me to actually talk about it without, like, a, a, like a PowerPoint. I found that out. Right. <laughs> so like, I'm like, let me, put, let me illustrate this. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The illustrations are really cool, actually. It was a great addition. I just wanted to quickly clarify for listeners as well. You've referred to Syl a couple of times. That's your mm -hmm. sister, Syl Co., who was the co-author of your first book. Correct. Yes, yeah. Syl. Yes, yes. She uh, authored, um, co-authored Afroism, my first book. And, yeah, so she's very smart. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, now, I'm not sure if this is maybe outside your purview as a theorist, but I'm wondering if you have some suggestions for some concrete ways in which activists can apply the theoretical framework you propose to our advocacy. And I'm wondering for white activists in particular, is there an effective and sensitive way in which we can approach these conversations? Sure. These are good questions. Um, 
So as a theorist, I don't create practical blueprints for people. And so in the book, I um, essentially link or try to analogize like being a social theorist to being like, let's say, like a mathematician or someone who does mathematical theory. And I give um, the example of fractal geometry, which was a mathematical theory, I think, born in the 70s. It was just a theory and, and people didn't really care for it. But without this theory we wouldn't be able to have cell phones today, right? So engineers took fractal geometry and made tiny little antennas, and now they fit into our phones, and we can have these really cool, sleek and cool phones that fit in the pocket. But that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for a theory. So what theorists do is we create ideas that oftentimes seem like elitist or disconnected to like the everyday needs of people, but that's what theory is. It's, it's actually it's as necessary as any other form of activism. And what we do is we create ideas that, Activists in the future, I almost call them like social engineers, social activists, can take these blueprints and create something like tangible with it. That's not what I do. However, the, what I can offer now to people, or some advice, is to stop thinking through movements. I have found movement logic and movement thinking to be so destructive to understanding an oppression. Uh, so destructive. And so it wasn't until I just completely just walked outside of all these movements and just looked at the literature itself that I started to see like new solutions and ideas. And that's how I was able to write this book. The, I wouldn't have written this book again if I only stayed in the Amorites movement logic and theory. And so, um, and in terms of white people, I don't, I don't necessarily, um, write just for white people or give the white people specifically advice. And I think that we sometimes underestimate white people's ability to contribute to this conversation. And I say this because there are already a lot of white people doing this work. In fact, I purposely start my new book out with two quotes from two white theorists. One of them is Lindgren Johnson, who wrote one of the best books I have ever read ever about anti-racism in animals. And it's called Race Matters, Animal Matters. And she's a white woman. Wow. And she uses black theory to write about animals and race. And that is the, the future that I see. I see a ton of white people are already doing this, but we just, a lot of people just don't know it. And so even James Perkinson is the second quote I use. I purposely start the book out and he's a white man who has written some of the best theory I have ever read in my existence about white supremacy. And so I think white people are doing work. I think that Sometimes in the vegan movement, there becomes this really superficial war between white vegans and black vegans. And for me, I used to be really invested in that. Like years ago, I used to be like, oh, man, it's the white vegans. And then I slowly learned over time that it is, it is not the white vegans. It's Eurocentric theory that even black people are subscribed to. And I realized that even when I went into racially homogenous spaces, like let's say only black vegans were around, I still felt that whiteness. I still felt the problem. And it's because it's the theory we're using. It's not the melanin level. And so that's why I would argue, let's not think about this through what white people can do, what black people can do. But it's about um, a kind of uh, throwing out or decentering Eurocentric theory and adding in black theory. Because when we add in black theory or decolonial theory, regardless of whatever your race is, beautiful new insights are produced. And that's why I would really urge people to check out Lindgren Johnson and James Perkinson, who are white people, who honestly, I feel like they even write better than I do <laughs> about race. But I'm black. You know, like I, they write Honestly, they write better than I do about black, you know, anti-racism, and it's wow. it's it's impressive. So that's that's what I would say. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview here. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, so the book uh, right now is available as an ebook, and it's going to be pr uh, printed later this month on recycled paper. I really urge people to get the printed. Because um, I think it's super cool and they use this cool effect on the cover that they haven't done before with Afroism. So I'm really, I'm really excited to hold a copy of it. So um, just letting everyone know it should be available later this month. Uh, the, and it's available for pre-order right now. Amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much, Af, for joining us on Animal Voices today and sharing these incredible insights with us. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I had a blast. Thank you, Elise. So once again, that was discussion was thanks to Animal Voices podcast, which you can check out at animalvoices.org or search Animal Voices on your favorite podcast app. 
And yeah, um, also, yeah, that is a show I've heard before as well and definitely highly recommend that. Also, look into AFCO's work. You can find all of her work at afco.com. So just A P H K O.com. And you can check out uh, all of her work and books, etc. there. Um, and the song we played in the middle of that interview was. Bugsy Malone, uh, Bugsy Malone's song December, and that had a lyric about stopping eating meats. I thought that was relevant to the interview. And yeah, I'm going to play to finish things up. I'm going to actually bring you a talk that I gave uh, a few years ago. This was from the Animal Activist Forum. And yeah, the talk is Academic and Activist Reflections on the Animal Advocacy Movement. And yeah, it was about a 45-minute talk, but I've got about a 15-minute section, which happened to be the perfect uh, ending or perfect length to end this show with. Um, And yeah, basically, it gives lessons for activists based on my PhD thesis. So, yeah, it just reminded me of this talk when AFCO was talking about the role of the theorist and how, yeah, I think academics are not necessarily obliged to sort of, you know, directly link their work. Their sort of activists can do that. But in in my own case, where I'd written an 80,000-word thesis that many activists wouldn't have the time or interest to go through, I wanted to, yeah, hopefully make some of this research a bit more accessible to activists. And, yeah, I actually started doing my PhD on something totally related. I was going to be doing... Uh, unrelated, sorry, to animals. I was going to be doing uh, it on the television organisations in Australia just because it seemed OK, I guess. But I'm really glad I switched over. And luckily, my supervisors were happy to switch over, even though they didn't really... It wasn't their area at all. And, yeah, what kind of led me to uh, do this is reading a book, uh, Making and Killing the Political Economy of Animal Rights by Bob Torres, who was one of the hosts of Vegan Freak Radio as a sociologist like me. And, yeah, it was basically looking at animal exploitation from a sociological perspective. So I was doing all this activism, asking all these questions, and then I had my PhD and sort of, yeah, having some discussions and reading that book actually helped me to, to bring those together. Um, so I'm going to talk about, like, I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of theories from my um, thesis or anything like that, so I'll try not to bore you too much, but I'm just going to give five lessons from my thesis that might be useful to animal advocates. So, yeah, the, the first lesson I would say uh, that I learned from the thesis, one thing that kind of surprised me, is that I kind of went into it in the idea, and, and this has kind of been touched on throughout the forum a little bit as well, that the primary debate is between animal rights and animal welfare in terms of campaigns, And actually I found from doing the thesis and looking at the various campaigning organisations that the biggest difference wasn't between um, animal rights and animal welfare. It was more between, at least the way I analyse it, it was more groups asking people to do a lot versus people asking people to do not so much in terms of what you're asking of people who are getting your message. So what I did is I looked into uh, a number of theories, including resource mobilisation, and basically what that, uh, well, what I'd sum that up is in terms of how it's relevant here, is what I spoke about as the little effort paradigm. And what that means is basically the more you ask people to do, the less will do it. All right, so they basically talk about there's different things we can ask the public to do, and sometimes these can be quite little things. So they can um, be things like uh, donations, they can be things like signing a petition, and these are quite they're, they're short amount of time and they're low risk. On the other on the other end of the spectrum, we can ask people to do that uh, things that take a lot of effort or things that uh, might involve a lot of risk, like maybe a blockade or a sitting, these things that might be higher risk, or things that might ask more of people in terms of effort and more long-term involvement. So basically the theory on this says that larger organisations will generally focus on organise, uh, sorry, will focus on tactics that ask less of people because they bring the most people in and large organisations need to get a big base. So basically resource mobilisation focuses a lot on the, um, the resource element in terms of shaping campaigns. And after doing this or throughout doing, I kind of changed my focus not so much the motivation, how resources motivate campaigns, but how different campaigns are consistent with different kinds of organisations for these reasons. Uh, so that was more my focus, how, yeah, different forms of campaigning. And I have spoken to people from more radical groups and they basically said all these other groups, like Animal Liberation Victoria, for example, have said, like, you know, we, we've, you know, all these other groups have done, they've grown and got so much bigger and we've stayed fairly small. And I think these grassroots groups, it's not necessarily a failing of these groups, but more their campaigns 
greens are, yeah, not as then they're less likely to attract as many resources because they don't ask as much of um, as much of people. So uh, again, this was an overview I did uh, looking at different animal campaigning groups over a year. The emails they sent to people who'd signed up for their email list. So I focused on larger organisations, and so it was Animals Australia, Humane Society United States, Humane Society International, and Peter. And again, to see how true this was in terms of what are these groups asking for people to do. So it was fairly consistent with the research in terms of, um, yeah, a vast majority of the campaigns asked people to either sign a petition or a pre-written letter, which are kind of lumped in together because, again, the letter's written for you. So in terms of little effort, there's not too much effort involved there. You've got to add your name um, and donations. Uh, there was other things which took a little bit more time, like uh, phoning something, buying something, uh, sending to friends. Most of them were fairly, um, yeah, fairly not very time intensive or uh, effort intensive actions. And what I was particularly interested in is this idea of how often were these groups asking people to change their lifestyle. And I don't really like that word, but you know what I mean, changing actually their practices, consumption practices, um, attitudes, sorry, actions towards animals and animal products, this kind of thing. So in terms of change lifestyle, over the course of this year, these large organisations, less than 7% um, asked people to... Less, seven, less than 7% of the emails um, asked people to change anything in terms of their consumption practices or, yeah, behaviours towards animals. And I've categorised these into minor and major lifestyle, um, yeah... Um, Changes. So, yeah, in terms of the major ones, uh, three of the emails encourage people to become vegetarian, so none uh, promoted veganism. And the minor ones were things like avoiding factory farming, avoiding caged eggs, uh, avoiding fur, avoiding Canadian seafood, avoiding the wild animal industry. So there definitely are some welfare things in there. But, again, I found these large groups, generally the debate... Well, generally the difference wasn't that some groups like Animal Liberation Victoria were asking people to go vegan and Animal Australia were telling people to eat free-range eggs, but generally it was more these organisations weren't actually um, necessarily challenging the consumption practices of those people receiving the emails. So, yeah, which flows on to my second lesson, which is if you want a primary focus on veganism, then you're going to have to um, adapt more grassroots styles of organising. And I was in touch with an animal advocate recently and they were wanting to set up a, a vegan organisation promoting veganism with paid staff and all this kind of stuff. And based on my research, I was like, probably not, mate, probably not. That's not going to... It's not going to work. And, yeah, and he's gone off and done something different, which has been really great. And it's just a different model. It's a volunteer-run kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, basically in terms of resources and veganism... Large organisations definitely can promote veganism, and uh, PETA is an example of that, have increasingly um, promoted veganism and actually use that word veganism in their activism rather than veg or vegetarian and these kind of things. So, again, there has been this overall vegan movement in the animal movement, but I guess the difference between um, yeah, groups like PETA and some others is that PETA um, promote veganism, but they also promote other options as well, which might be more consistent with little paradigms. So, yes, you can go veganism, vegan, um, but, yeah, in my interview with Gary Francione, saying you can promote veganism as a smorgasbord as option. So you can go vegan, but you can go vegetarian. You can cut back. You can eat free-range eggs. You can sign a petition against seal clubbing. So if you have veganism as one of many options, it's not going to affect resources too much. Um, but... What I refer to, what Gunther refers to as animal rights vegan activism, um, is where you depart from this little effort paradigm. You're asking people to do a lot more, and that's why all of the organisations I focused on were totally volunteer run, uh, no office space, these kind of things. So more grassroots kind of things. So yeah, animal rights vegan activism is defined as groups who put all or nearly all of their resources or their efforts into promoting veganism rather than these other campaigns. And so, again, the reason why these groups tend to be more grassroots and less paid staff, these kind of things, uh, is partly because it is uh, asking people to do more and it's also less consistent with claiming victories. So in terms of bringing in resources, a common thing is actually claiming victories and I think veganism is harder to actually sell as a victory compared to other campaigns. Um, I know Roger Yates, who is a sociologist and animal advocate in Ireland, has said we could get each new ethical vegan as a little victory on a, hard, on sort of a, a, a road towards animal liberation, 
But I'd also sort of in contrast, I'd point out that it's a harder pitch when a lot of these organisations have a predominantly non-vegan donor base. And that's a common issue with organisations. There's definitely vegans in there, but there's many non-vegans as well. So it's kind of a, it's not exactly a great victory to say, we've got someone to do something you don't want to do and we're going to tell them to. It doesn't really work as much as, you know, we've shut down this practice, we've you know, stopped this industry, those kind of things. So, yeah, I think veganism... Um, yeah, if you want to focus a lot on veganism, it's going to be grassroots because it's, it's harder to claim victories and you're asking people to do more. Having said that, I think the conditions are right for animal rights vegan activism, so activism that does promote veganism um, as the primary uh, mode of activism. And, yeah, I mentioned the live export campaign before and there are a number of different you know, strands within the movement to that issue. So some were promoting chilled meat in place of live export, but others, like... Um, yeah, I was involved in animal rights advocates promoting a vegan message, using that to talk about the horrors of all animal slaughter, not just in Indonesia but in Australia too. Uh, groups like um, Animal Liberation Victoria, groups like uh, Vegan New South Wales, now Vegan Australia were there uh, promoting a similar message as well. So there is uh, vegan activism going on. And I think as long as we keep in mind that if we do switch to that sort of mode of organising, as long as we keep in mind, at least in this present climate, that we're going to have to do things a different way and do things a more grassroots way, then, again, I think the conditions are very ripe for this kind of activism. So this is from my thesis here. I looked at Australian newspapers and the number of articles that include the term vegan, and we can see that skyrocketed over the last several years. So people are a lot, familiar with, a lot more familiar with the word veganism, a lot even more with the concept. I still think there's a long way to go, and people have had of the, yeah, heard of the concept, don't necessarily get the um, philosophy behind it. I know someone said, oh, those sausages might be gluten-free, so I think you can eat them as a vegan. So I still feel they know what veganism is, but they, yeah, well, they've heard the word vegan, I should say, but there's still um, education to be done on the public. But even the fact that people know what, what vegan is, I know um, Patty Mark interviewing Patty for my thesis was saying that back uh, to the 90s, they didn't want to use the word vegetarian because it was too off-putting, and now we're at the point where we can use veganism quite easy, and people know what we're talking about. Um, and also another reason why vegan activism has become more viable is that um, the internet has emerged, and we don't, we're less reliant on traditional modes of communication, things like sending out letters and all these kind of things which might rely on more professionalised forms of organisation. So through social media, through website, these kind of things, even if you don't have those resources, you can still reach large numbers of people. So um, I'd also, yeah, as it's kind of obvious, I'm kind of myself more interested in the grassroots side of things, but I'd also point out that both larger and smaller organisations are limited in their ability to promote veganism. Just the constraints are different depending on what sort of organisational form you set up. So in terms of larger, larger organisations, they are limited in, ten, in terms of veganism tends to be promoted less often and also it tends to be promoted in a bit of a weaker way. So for example, as a diet only, which again is maybe not departing from that little effort paradigm as much as uh, switching over to clothing and you know, household products, all these kind of things, so more of a diet. Uh, so yeah, again, it's less often, it's kind of in there somewhere, but it's often not the primary message. Um, it's maybe a different form of veganism or not, not the total form of veganism. But having said that, these organisations do have a bigger platform to promote that message. So yeah, I guess uh, thinking of like the Animals Australia Go Veg site, um, that's going to have a lot more hits than our Vegan Perth website. So they're not using the word vegan there, but they're promoting very much the same thing as we promoted with our Vegan Perth website. Um, but yeah, they're reaching a lot more people because they have the media attention, they have the resources, those kind of things. So they have some, um, they have some advantages in promoting um, a vegan message. And same with smaller organisations as well. So because um, these smaller organisations um, aren't as reliant on bringing in resources because they don't have paid staff and these kind of things, they can afford to promote a more radical message. And again, I focus on veganism here. They can promote veganism more often. They can promote a, um, a more total, inclusive form of veganism. Um, but having said that, um, they tend to get less mainstream media coverage. And this is partly because they have less resources and also partly because the media often falls into this um, false idea of objectivity of providing both sides of the story. So again, live, around live export, for example, um, we'll have industry speaking and we'll have the RSBCA speaking maybe, but we won't get a third view that actually challenges all sort of because we've already showed both sides of the story. So more radical views are often sidelined in these kind of debates in general. And finally, uh, the last lesson I'd bring up is that 
Uh, again, um, more intersectional activism, which I raised um, earlier, uh, tends to be uh, less resources. It tends to bring less resources as well. Um, so basically, uh, Carol Glasser has pointed out, um, if you focus on one issue, you tend to develop a larger base of supporters, more resources, more funds and political allies. An example I came across in my research was the organisation Insight Women of Colour Against Violence, and they were offered a grant from the Ford Foundation, but that um, grant was, uh, yeah, down the track it was actually taken away because they supported the Palestinian struggle against occupation. So by bringing that extra issue, they were okay with that one, but bringing another one, they, they lost the resources. So basically the more causes you bring in, the more you shrink your donor base from the public, from foundations, from corporations, etc. And so I think because of that, um, grassroots activism has more capacity to bring in um, a wide range of different issues. And, yeah, I also wanted to uh, just make a, a bit of a case for, uh, uh, for intersectional activism. Uh, again, that was done really well this morning, but just to reaffirm it, I think it's really important on practical grounds in terms of these causes are just really important supporting in their own right, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, all these kind of things. So, yeah, they should, I'd just like to see more people support these causes in general. But in terms of more of a practical thing for animal activists, research has found that those who identify as right-wing or conservative consume more animals and are also more likely to return to animal consumption if they do go vegetarian or vegan than left-wing and liberals. And I think that's because of the people they are surrounding themselves with as well. So I think for both um, practical reasons as well as um, yeah, philosophical reasons, I think intersectionality in the movement is really important. Um, and yeah, those studies are from Faunalytics. Faunalytics.org has a lot of really useful resources for animal advocates in general. And yeah, Vegan Sci is another one um, from uh, Adam, who spoke uh, last session. But that's very much focused on veganism and animal liberation specifically, not animal, liberation, not animal activism as a whole. So that's another great one to check out. Join the global slut walk movement to end slut shaming and victim blaming. Tune into 3CR on November 14th at 1pm. Turn it up loud and let the speeches fill the streets. Tell the world, even in a pandemic, we will not be silenced. Slutwalk, it's a controversial name, not a controversial message. Slutwalk Melbourne, it's a 3CR supporter. Good girls bet a man with a beard, but God is a woman and she's tough and she's queer. Good girls are You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So as I mentioned before, that was just a, yeah, sort of about a third of the talk. If you're interested in uh, finding the whole talk, you can check that out on archive.org. We'll put a link up to that, which also covers my, some of my experiences with activism and some lessons for activists out of that. I also did a series of blog posts which were expanded on each of these lessons, the five I gave in, in the talk just played. You can find them at faunalytics.org and we'll put links to all of this stuff, including the PowerPoint for the talk as well. We'll put that all in the notes, uh, the show notes um, on fr Freedom of Species. And if you listen to this live, we'll have them in the um, social media as well. Um, yeah, it was interesting actually AFCO mentioning that critique of intersectionality then I was speaking about intersectionality and yeah, I think that it is, um, yeah, I guess the important thing for me is more that central point that AFCO mentioned, race matters, animals matter, all these issues matter, but I certainly take AFCO's point that certainly intersectionality is not the only lens that we can um, view, that, that, view that through or come to that conclusion through. And as, as AFCO points out, in a way, racism and speciesism aren't sort of separate intersecting forms of oppression, but actually almost in a way one and the same because they're so closely tied together. That talk is from the, or was from the Animal Activist Forum. You can search them on Facebook as well as find them on Twitter at Activist Forum uh, for future events from the Animal Activist Forum. We are one till two every Sunday. You can tune in live um, eight via 8.55am if you're in Melbourne or from 3cr.org.au from anywhere around the world um, and you can also check out all of our shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species as well as on iTunes uh, connect with us on social media email feedback to info at freedom of species.org and yeah stay tuned for Encyclopedia. I'm going to leave you with just a tiny little bit of the song No 
fun by Sex Pistols. And yeah, this is a uh, this is a lyric about a sociology lecture because I thought that was quite relevant to my my talk, which was obviously based on a, a PhD within sociology. So hopefully it wasn't too much of lecture. Hopefully you got something out of that, but even more, I'm sure you got a lot out of the AFCO interview. So yeah, we'll be back next week, one till two. Right. Sociology lecture with a bit of psychology, a bit of neurology, a bit of fuckology. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.